Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Alan Freeland looks at the influence that pets have had on rulers throughout history. Alan's talk covers far more than just cats and dogs. When I proposed the topic of pets in history, I thought it'd be a relatively easy talk to put together. It turned out to be rather difficult. Because when looking for pictures to illustrate the talk, it was just so easy to get lost in a rabbit hole of cute pictures. I lost whole evenings making no progress whatsoever. But why am I talking about pets at all? It started last winter, I decided to prepare a talk on the statues of London. As I walked around London photographing the statues, I was struck by the large number that also included the person's pet. For example, the artist William Hogarth identified strongly with his dogs and included them in many of his paintings. His statue in Chiswick shows him with his faithful dog, Trump. What of that adage, behind every great man is a woman? I searched in vain for statues of great men with their wives. This struck me as very odd. Does society really see pets as more influential than wives? That is far too big a question for me to answer, but I thought we should at least look at the role of pets in history, and hence this talk. I did consult many books, but I have to say the literature is sparse on good academic historic references. I recognise that birds, reptiles and other small mammals have been popular pets, but by far the most common are cats and dogs, so most of the talk will focus on them. And as this is world history, we will look at pets in non-Christian societies as well. And I've structured the talk broadly chronologically. So we'll start with Egyptians, then look at Europe's classical period, and then pad through the European Middle Ages all the way to modern times. But first we must start with the concept of pets, and that starts with domestication. For hundreds of thousands of years, man got his food the same way as all the animals, by hunting and gathering. Then around 10,000 to 15,000 years ago, man developed two skills that dramatically changed his relationship with animals. The first was the planting of seeds to grow a crop which could be harvested, and the second was the herding of animals. Anthropologists and archaeologists have many theories about how domestication started, but there's little hard evidence. It is likely the bond between man and dog happened during man's hunter-gatherer stage, i.e. predating pastoralism. Scientists believe that the rock art at a place called Shuamis in Saudi Arabia dates from around 9,000 years ago. The art is hard to see. It shows a man out hunting with dogs. Some dogs are on a lead tied to his waist so that his hands are free. Others are not on a lead. Maybe there are two types of dogs, sight hounds and bloodhounds, or maybe trained and untrained. We just don't know. The dogs may well be an ancestor of the Canaan dog, 
a breed that even today is found in both the wild and domesticated forms. Thus dogs became domesticated initially as hunting dogs, and then when man adopted pastoralism as guard dogs for the herds and flocks. What of cats? Our understanding of the domestication of cats dramatically changed in the 1990s as a result of archaeological work on Cyprus. Prior to man's arrival, Cyprus had a unique fauna. Most mammals were not present. So, along with evidence of the first Homo sapiens on Cyprus, archaeologists have found the first remains of foxes, dogs, cats, deer, sheep, cattle, and the house mouse, all non-indigenous. Archaeologists argue the cat was deliberately introduced to control the mice and rats. This early form of domestication probably amounted to no more than the cats seeking out the grain stores and being given access. Interestingly, this means that the cat flap, or the cat door, was invented before the cat was domesticated. In a sense, the cat domesticated us, rather than the other way around. Over time, we developed dogs to meet specific needs. Hunting dogs, such as the Saluki and the Foxhound. Guard dogs, such as the Great Pyrenees. Search and rescue dogs, such as the Bloodhound. And herding dogs, such as the Border Collie. With cats, we accepted our subservient position because they could catch mice. In 2004, a burial from around 9,500 years ago was found. It is of an adult human and a cat in the same grave. That would suggest at the very least that the cat was valued by the adult or the adult society, and it's quite likely, therefore, that this cat was a pet. A memorial plaque written in Egyptian hieroglyphs found adjacent to the Great Pyramid of Giza informs us that Abu Tiyu was a king's guard dog and was buried ceremoniously with the type of honours usually reserved to a member of the royal family, including embalming. Embalming was believed to allow the dog's soul to enter the afterlife. Abu Tiyu's tomb has not been found, and we have no pictures of the dog, but it was probably most similar to a modern-day greyhound. The Greek historian Herodotus informs us that dogs were protected animals in ancient Persia and were treated with the same respect in Egypt. The historian Jimmy Dunn lists some of the dog names that the Egyptians used. These included names such as Brave One, Reliable, Good Herdsman, North Wind, Antelope, and even Useless. <laughs> the culture we most associate with cats is the Egyptian dynastic culture, lasting from around 3000 BCE to Egypt's conquest by the Greeks in around 300 BCE. What is curious is that in the early dynasties, it was leopards, cheetahs and lions that were revered, but over time it was the domestic cat that was worshipped. One of the most famous cat goddesses was Bastet, the protector of Lower Egypt, and later the goddess of pregnancy and fertility, and the protector from contagious diseases. This was very much the height of the cat's social standing, a feat it would pay for later. The cat was worshipped spiritually and seen as the source of civic power. Every household would have a cat, Many would have more than one. Herodotus reports that if a house was on fire, the first items that would be rescued would be the cats. And when a pet cat died, its funeral service was just as profound as that for any family member, and it was the custom for all members of the household to shave off their eyebrows. Egyptians were fond of pets in general. Cats were definitely preferred over dogs, which in turn were more popular than monkeys, fish, gazelles, falcons, lions and hippos all of which are mentioned in historic records. So the cat was both a god and a pet. Us cat owners suspected as much. 
From the cat's point of view, this adulation had its downsides. With such a strong bond between master and cat, it is only natural that when the master died, he would want his cat to accompany him to the afterlife. The most famous example of this is Crown Prince Thutmose. He died young, predeceasing his father, and he was entombed with his pet cat, Ta-Mu, which translates as she-cat. The cat on the side of its sarcophagus shows the cat before a table piled high with food for it to consume in the afterlife. And many historians claim that from the first millennium BCE, the demand for cats for votive offerings reached at such a height that the priests ran kitten farms to supply the kittens. And kittens were preferred by the priests to avoid the expense of having to rear grown cats. 200 years before the Greeks conquered Egypt, the Persians conquered Egypt, and they ruled for over 100 years. The decisive battle was the Battle of Pelusium, which is extensively written about by the Greek historian Herodotus. Another Greek author, Polyanus, writing in the 2nd century, adds information that Herodotus doesn't include. Polyanus said that the Persian ruler, Cambyses, knowing the Egyptians would not harm a cat, ordered his army to carry the sacred animals in front of them. The tactic worked, the Egyptians refused to fight, and the Persians won the battle by default and conquered Egypt. Bastet, the, the Egyptian goddess of fertility, was also the goddess of the moon. Every day she would accompany her father, Ra, the sun, across the sky, and every night she would turn into a cat and hunt for the Ra's great enemy, the serpent Apep. Women turning into cats. This isn't going to end well for either party. As the Greeks absorbed Egyptian mythology, Bastet's role was subsumed into that of Artemis, the daughter of the sky god Zeus, and the goddess of hunting, nature, and childcare. Artemis is a complicated character, being both the protector of animals and the hunter of animals, being the goddess of chastity and the goddess of childbirth, the bringer of diseases and the curer of diseases, and she was both caring and vengeful, and like Bastet, a goddess of the moon. And in Roman culture, Artemis becomes the goddess Diana. Ovid, in the Metamorphoses, says that Diana could turn herself into a cat, and Greek and Roman mythology also links Artemis and Diana to the underworld. Thus we have a strong association of cats with women, with the moon, with the underworld, and with magic. And cats are also associated with sex. This may be because, as Aristotle wrote in his History of the Animals, the females are very lascivious, and invite the male, making a noise during intercourse. When male religious leaders were looking for something to define as other, they had a potent mix to point at, but we've not yet reached the Christians. In many cultures, and certainly true in Roman times, it was customary to show images of the deceased with things that were important to them or indicators of their status or their role in life. One of the first mentions of cats in Rome is from Palladius, an author who wrote on agricultural matters. And it sounds like he was answering a question on Roman gardeners' question time when he advised using cats rather than ferrets to stop moles from eating the artichokes. <laughs> In general, the Romans were more practical and less sentimental than the Greeks about the cat and much more happy to use parts of the cat in medicine. Funerary monuments also show the Romans love their pet dogs. Roman mosaic from the 2nd century BCE adorns the entrance to a villa in Pompeii, known to historians as the House of the Tragic Poet. Under the image of the dog are the Latin words carve canum, which means beware of the dog. 
Just like today, there are at least three possible interpretations of this mosaic. One, as a warning to potential burglars that there is a fierce dog in the grounds, even if there isn't. Two, as a warning to visitors that there's a large dog which can be over-friendly and may cause alarm to those nervous of dogs. Or, there is a small lap dog in the grounds, please be careful and don't tread on it. Also in the Museum of Pompeii are many plaster casts of those who died horribly in the volcanic eruption. One is of a woman holding a cat, and another is of a child and a dog side by side. On the dog's collar is a Latin inscription. It reads, Thrice has this dog saved his little master from death, once from fire, once from flood, and once from thieves. But sadly, it wasn't able to save the child or itself from the volcano. Caged birds were a popular pet in Roman cities, often being written about in the literature. Catching and caging a wild bird was often seen as a metaphor for seduction. The most famous pet bird in Roman times is Lesbia's pet sparrow. The Roman poet Catullus wrote two poems about Lesbia's sparrow. And although sparrows do seem to have been kept as caged birds, some historians think the more popular choice would be a blue rock thrush. It is much more decorative and much easier to tame. It could be that in the Lesbia poems, the sparrow represents her missing lover. However, many historians think Catullus is referring to sex in these poems, as the Latin word for sparrow, passer, also refers to the male's sexual organ. It seems that the fashion for pet caged birds was something the Romans developed for themselves, as caged birds don't appear to be common in the previous Greek or Egyptian cultures. Throughout history, artists have been keen to portray Hercules with the Nemean lion, thinking they were portraying the first of Hercules' twelve labours. Those of us who've owned a cat know that this is just the loving owner trying to give the cat a pill. Cats, however, are not popular in Mongolia. There is a Mongolian proverb, a dog wishes his master life, a cat wishes death. All cultures have creation myths and we'll come to Noah and the Ark shortly. But this is the Mongolian creation myth. The Mongols' god, Tengri, decided to make a new immortal creature to rule the earth. This creature was man, and he fashioned man out of clay. The clay needed a few days to dry, so God provided man with a dog to protect him. As the other animals got to learn that God intended for man to rule over them, they became angry and sought to destroy man before he was fully baked. Horse, camel and ox all came to destroy the clay, but all were driven away by the dog. However, Erlik Khan, the king of the underworld, was awoken from a deep and satisfying sleep by the dog's barking. Very grumpy, he threw the dog to the far side of the Altai Mountains so he could get back to sleep, and he replaced the dog by a cat. The smart cat, knowing what joy man would bring him, rubbed up against the clay people and made them warm. This meant they came to life before they were fully cooked, and because of this they were no longer immortal. And this is why Mongols are not fans of cats. And proof that medieval people had pets, not just working animals that they made friends with, comes in the form of the lapdog. I'm not aware of any work to which these diminutive dogs could be put. Lapdogs start to appear in the historical records in China during the Tang Dynasty, the 8th century. And interestingly, they are recorded as being exotic gifts from abroad given to the Chinese emperor. And they were kept by court ladies for their amusement. Pekingese dogs started to arrive in Britain after the Second Opium War, and in 1865, Queen Victoria was given one called Luti, which started a craze for the breed amongst the upper classes. Luti was booty from the sacking of the Summer Palace. 
And this is how the lapdog has evolved, dogs in bags. I did mention it was very easy to get distracted. In our history of pets, two momentous events are about to occur, the arrival of Christianity and the arrival of Islam. So let's just recap what in general people thought about cats and dogs. Dogs, useful, loyal, hardworking, valued as both pets and working animals. Cats, lazy, disloyal, creatures of the night, associated with the moon, women and fertility, valued as pets by women and children, useful for mousing and better than ferrets. So how have cats and dogs fared in Christian lands? Setting the tone is the Bible. And you would think that given what we've just said about cats and dogs, at least dogs would come out favourably. But the Bible isn't a fan of either cats or dogs. In the New King James Version, dog is mentioned 40 times and always negatively. Here's an example. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. And cats are not mentioned at all in most versions of the Bible. There's an obscure reference in the common English Bible in the letter of Jeremiah. Their faces, having been darkened by the smoke that is in the temple, bats, swallows, birds and cats land on their bodies and heads. From this you will know that they aren't gods, so don't be afraid of them. The big change for Christians came with Emperor Theodosius. His edict in the year 380 made it mandatory to be a Christian. If you are not Christian, you are against the state and at the very least be fined or have your property confiscated. And the male church leaders spent their time codifying Christianity and ensuring it was strongly differentiated from the pagan religions that had gone before. Anything previously associated with the likes of Isis, Bastet, Artemis or Diana, for example, was suspect. And this included women and cats. And for cats, the next 1500 years or so would indeed be dark ages. But the cats still had a couple of tricks hidden in their whiskers. They could be companionable and they could catch mice. But before we enter the Middle Ages, let's pause aboard Noah's Ark. Despite the lack of references to the cat in the Bible, there are two historic stories concerning the cat and the ark. Supposedly, when the ark had been at sea for some weeks, the number of rats and mice multiplied so much that they were causing a real problem. Noah, either by chance or with God's assistance, rubbed the head of the lion three times. The lion sneezed and out came the domestic cat. The cat was so successful at controlling the rats and mice that when the rains finally stopped, the cats led the procession off the ark. And a variant of this story is that when the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, now in modern-day Turkey, the cats were so keen to get off that they jumped into the sea and swam ashore. All that is left of the biblical flood near Mount Ararat is Lake Van, some 75 miles south of the mountain. This is where the Turkish Van cats live, one of only a few breeds of domestic cat that enjoys swimming, due no doubt to its unique water-repellent coat. Whilst church cats have a rather ambiguous relationship with religious doctrine, their Muslim brothers and sisters have the full support of Islam. And studies of religious texts start early in life. Because of cats' attention to washing themselves, they are regarded as clean and allowed into holy places and are not deemed to contaminate food or water if they touch it, unlike dogs. Muhammad's sayings, the hadiths, mention cats many times, always in a positive way and persecuting or killing cats is prohibited in Islam. 
And although there's no contemporary evidence, many Muslims believe that Muhammad's favorite cat was called Mueza. And Muslims will recount the story that one day, Mueza was sleeping on the sleeve of the gown. When the call to prayer came, rather than disturb the cat, Muhammad cut off the sleeve. Muslims are as confused about dogs as Christians were about cats. And this is because the Islamic scripture is ambiguous. The Quran explicitly allows Muslims to eat meat that has been carried by hunting dogs. And another verse implies that guard dogs are a good thing. But an Hadith says that the angel Gabriel refused to come into Muhammad's home because there was a puppy in it. This has been taken to mean that Muslims should not have pet dogs. We move next to medieval Christian Europe. So a quick quiz to start. Who is the patron saint of dogs? Patron saint of dogs is the 14th century pilgrim, St. Roche, who was canonized in the 16th century, and we'll meet him later. And who is the patron saint of cats? Well, it's complicated. Gertrude of Nivelle was a 7th century Belgian abbess and generally a good person being called upon to end diseases and plagues. 800 years later, in the plagues of the 15th century, St. Gertrude was still being called on to end the plagues and clear towns of mice and rats. In the 20th century, folklorists began conflating her with the Norse goddess Freya, sometimes also known as Frigg. But it wasn't until the 1980s that Gertrude became associated in the public's mind as the patron saint of cats. But the Catholic Church doesn't recognize Gertrude as having this role. From the 13th century, she's written about in collections of Norse poems, and by now she has upgraded her mount for a chariot pulled by two cats. The anniversary of St. John the Baptist's birth is a time in the Christian calendar to ward off witches and evil spirits. And this is typically celebrated on the evening before, starting sunset on June 23rd, when a large bonfire with an effigy of a witch on top is set alight. L.A. Vossel, in her book, Revered and Reviled, states, In 1575, a receipt signed by Lucas Pomero states, For having supplied for three years all the cats required for the fire on St. John's Day, as usual. These cats would have been for burning alive. The same fate befell the cats at Easter and Lent. I'm sure you won't be surprised to learn that when it comes to King Arthur's pets, we're in uncertain ground. So in keeping with the excellent is it fact or fiction that David Simpson explored for us last year, King Arthur pulling a sword from a rock, and a popular children's book called Caval in Camelot, a dog in King Arthur's court. In the appendix of the History of the Britons, a text written to have been written in the 9th century, there is a mention of King Arthur's hound, Cabal, or Caval. The text records a mound known as Cairn Cabal in Wales. It is said that when King Arthur was hunting the boar Tork Trick, his hound, Cabal, stepped on a stone and left a footprint there. So, irrespective of whether King Arthur is real, at least we know he had a favourite dog. Or do we? Some historians note the similarity between the word Cabal and the Latin word for horse, Cabalus. And another historian notes the early Celtic word Carn means both hoof and cairn. So the history of the Britons may be referring to a horse rather than a dog. Or Cabal could simply be a metaphor for a dog as big as a horse. I knew you'd be disappointed had the story not been so ambiguous. But as it's associated with Arthur, people want to know what sort of dog it would have been had King Arthur and the dog existed. One option is the now extinct breed of the Molossian Hound, 
The closest breeds existing today would be the Great Dane, the Rottweiler and the Newfoundland. The Molossian Hound originated in ancient Greece and are known to have been brought to Britain by the Romans. And they occur frequently in ancient Greek and Roman writings and were valued for their size and ferocity. Another option is given by the Greco-Roman poet Orpion, who in the 3rd century wrote, There is a strong breed of hunting dog, small in size but no less worthy of great praise. These, the wild tribes of Britons, with their tattooed backs, rear and call by the name of Agassan. Their size is like that of a worthless and greedy domestic table dogs. Squat, emaciated, shaggy, dull of eye, but endowed with feet armed with powerful claws and a mouth sharp with close-set, venomous, tearing teeth. It is by virtue of its nose, however, that the Agassan is most exalted, and for tracking it is the best there is. And the Roman historian Tacitus, in the first century, writes that Britain's main exports were grain, hides, cattle, iron, silver, slaves, and clever hunting dogs. Some argue that the British Bulldog is the natural descendant of the Agassan, though others argue for the Springer Spaniel, or even the Yorkshire Terrier. And just in a flight of fancy, it led me to think that maybe, just maybe, Excalibur wasn't a sword after all, but the name of Arthur's favourite pet dog. Excalibur, come on, walkies! <laughs> just a thought. Moving on to the 11th and 12th centuries. The abbot, William of St. Three, had a pet dog that he was exceedingly fond of, despite the ecclesiastical dictates against pets. When his dog died, the abbot wrote the following elegy. He was not a large dog, but a slight dog, a short pup. He was five years old, white in colour. He bejeweled his face with black eyes. What was his function? Was it a useful one or not? That his large master should love a small dog. That was his duty, to play before the master. And what was the use of that? There was none, if not laughter. No one failed to laugh as he stood or as he moved. You were laughter while you were alive, but look at the grief when you have died. Whoever saw you, whoever knew you, loves you, and grieves now over your demise, pitiful dog. I don't think there can be any doubt whatsoever that our relationship with pets is much the same then as it is now. 12th century Europe was a time when many different Christian sects were being set up. These risked undermining the power of the Pope and the Catholic Church was ruthless in putting down these alternative views of Christianity. The Waldenses, the Lollards, the Cathars and the Templars were all labelled as heretics and accused of witchcraft and of worshipping the devil. In the forefront of this preaching was Saint Dominic. It was he who declared the black cat as the embodiment of Satan. Pope Gregory IX, a few years after St. Dominic died, issued a papal bull called Vox in Rama, which formally proclaimed the church's position on cats. The cat was a vessel of the devil. So who was St. Dominic, and was he a dog person? St. Dominic is the founder of the Catholic Dominican Order of Preachers. He was born in the Kingdom of Castile, and his mother, who had been barren till this time, made a pilgrimage to the nearby abbey of Santo Domingo de Silos. On her return, she dreamt that a black and white dog leapt from her womb, carrying a burning torch. A preacher at the monastery said this dream foretold that she would bear a son who would be a great preacher and set the world on fire with his words. Later, when her son Dominic had grown up and was forming his order, 
The name Dominican appealed to the clergy of the time, being a play on the Latin Domini Canis, dogs of the Lord. Their remit was to be like watchful hounds and guard against the perils of heresy. You would have thought that with such a start in life and a life that involved lots of travel and being away from friends, that Dominic would have welcomed a canine friend. He had none. So despite the fact he's usually portrayed with a dog carrying a burning torch, I think Dominicans were no friends to dogs. Fortunately, the 14th century gives us a true friend to dogs, although it was the dog that made the first move. The patron saint of dogs is Saint Roche. He has other responsibilities as well, looking after the falsely accused and bachelors, for example. According to legend, he was born in Montpellier, France, to wealthy parents who died when he was 20. He gave all his possessions away, became a Franciscan and travelled to Rome, curing the sick. Here he himself became ill with the plague, so he retreated to a forest to recover. He was not good at foraging and soon became famished. One day, a dog came to him with a loaf of bread in its mouth, which he gave to Roche. And every evening from then on, the dog would appear with a loaf. The dog's master, a nobleman named Gotthard, noticed that every day at dinner, the dog would take a loaf from the table and disappear. And one evening, Gotthard decided to follow his dog. He discovered Roche and brought him home to recover. So this is very much a story of a dog befriending a person rather than the other way around. Robert the Bruce was crowned King of Scotland in 1306 and the English King, Edward I, sent his men to capture and kill Robert. Edward's army defeated Robert at the Battle of Kildrummy and Robert fled, sending his wife, daughters and dog to Kildrummy Castle. The English subsequently captured the castle and imprisoned the women. But clearly the ways of dogs must have been well known to Edward's men, who then used Robert's own dog, Darnchar, to find Robert. And Darnchar duly did lead the English to Robert. However, when the English started to attack Robert, Robert's dog turned on them, attacked the English soldiers, and Robert was again able to escape. Jean Foussart was a 14th century French author and court historian. His chronicles are an important source of information about the first half of the Hundred Years' War. He writes about the deposition of Richard II and the ascension of Henry Bolingbroke as Henry IV in 1399. Quote, King Richard had a greyhound called Matthew, who was in the constant practice of attending the king, and he would not follow any other person. And as the king and the Earl of Derby, known to us as Henry Bolingbroke, were engaged in conversing with each other in the court, the greyhound, which was usually accustomed to leap upon the king, left his majesty and went to the Earl of Derby, Duke of Lancaster, and behaved towards him with the same familiarity and attachment as he was usually in the habit of showing towards the king. The Duke, who did not know the greyhound, demanded of the king what the animal might mean by so doing. Cousin, quoth the king, that is a sign portending great prosperity to you and a token of adversity to me. Sir, how do you know that, quoth the Duke? I know it for a certainty, replied the king. The greyhound maketh you cheer this day as king of England, to which dignity you will be raised, and I shall be deposed. The greyhound possesses this knowledge naturally, therefore take him to you. He will follow you and forsake me. The Duke of Lancaster fully understood these words and cherished the animal, which would never afterwards follow King Richard, but follow the Duke of Lancaster. For the 15th century, we're in sophisticated Paris with our medieval friend, Christine de Bizan. Her most famous book is The Book of the City of Ladies, where she attacks misogyny. 
The 14th century Dominican preacher John Bromyard described how pet dogs devoured food that their rich and uncaring masters and mistresses could have provided for the poor. He writes, The wealthy provide for their dogs more readily than for the poor, more abundantly and more delicately too, so that, whereas the poor are so famished they would greedily devour bran bread, dogs turn up their noses at the sight of wafer bread. They must be offered the daintiest flesh, the first and choicest portion of every dish, and if full, they refuse it. Then there is wailing about them, as though they were ill. And we will see these sentiments repeated again in the 18th century. But I knew I was right about the Dominicans, not dog people. St. Jerome is famous for taking a thorn out of a lion's paw and thus making a friend for life. Amongst Christians, he's also known for his large output of insightful writings and translations, and he must have spent a lot of time in his study. In fact, all throughout the medieval period, we had cat companions. Neolithic man kept cats to stop mice eating his grain. Medieval scholars kept cats to stop mice eating their books. Another 15th century scribe found a nasty stain on the page he was working on, and he was forced to leave that part blank, writing a note next to it, saying, Here is nothing missing, but a cat urinated on this during a certain night. Cursed be the pesty cat that urinated over this book during the night in Deventa, and because of it, many other cats too. And be aware well not to leave open books at night where cats can come. Of course, modern cats are much more creative. According to Professor Marion Gibson at Exeter University, in order for medieval men to understand how women witches could have agency, they determined that women must have the devil's help, and this was provided through a companion. Cats, dogs, toads and ferrets were all common forms for the devil to take. The first witch's cat that made the tabloid papers was a 16th century white spotted cat called Satan which belonged to Elizabeth Francis from Essex. Elizabeth Francis was accused of sending the cat to neighbours she didn't like and having the cat make them fall ill. She used the same approach to punish a lover who refused to marry her. It was, however, the Victorians that made the black cat the de facto witch's companion. And witches seem to be in a common belief in most societies throughout recorded history. And the Bible is clear, Exodus 22:18. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. So we're into the 16th century now, and I think this story is probably known to many of you. Certainly when I was putting the talk together, at least two people came up to me and said, are you including this one? And yes, we are. So when five-year-old Mary, Queen of Scots, was forced to flee from the English and go to France, she had for company her own court including two half-brothers and four girls, all her own age and all named Mary. And she also had the company of 22 lapdogs. Returning to England, and during the 19 years she was held at the pleasure of Queen Elizabeth, she was allowed dogs for company. But when Mary went to be executed, she hid a favourite dog under her skirts. And once beheaded, one eyewitness, a Robert Winkfield, reported then one of the executioners pulled off her gaiters, espied her little dog, which was crept under her cloths, which could not be gotten forth by force, yet afterwards would not depart from the dead corpse, but came and lay between her head and her shoulders, which being imbued with her blood, 
was carried away and washed, as all things else were that had any blood was either burned or washed clean, and the executioners sent away with money for their fees. So however great we may think the Tudor period was, I'm pretty certain there were no dog trauma specialists. So we've reached the 17th century, and this one is definitely a pet. So may I introduce to you Trixie, favourite of Henry Rithersley, 3rd Earl of Southampton. Henry was friends with Shakespeare, who dedicated a couple of poems to him. He's widely thought to be the fair youth in Shakespeare's sonnets. He was also friendly with other writers of his day, and had he continued to put his energy into the arts, our story would not be told. In 1598, he got his lover pregnant. His lover was Elizabeth Vernon, one of the Queen Elizabeth's ladies-in-waiting. He did the decent thing and married her, but without the Queen's permission, thus earning for him a black mark and for her imprisonment. However, after that, he got involved in the Earl of Essex's failed rebellion against the Queen and as a consequence was imprisoned in the Tower. We're reliant on the Welsh author Thomas Pennant for what happens next. He writes in Some Account of London, 1793. A very remarkable accident befell Henry Rithersley, Earl of Southampton, the friend and companion of the Earl of Essex, in his fatal insurrection. After he'd been confined there a small time, he was surprised by a visit from his favourite cat, which had found its way to the tower and, as tradition says, reached its master by descending the chimney of his apartment. Clearly, Henry can't have spent all his time going to plays and with his mistress. He must have spent long enough to bond with Trixie for Trixie to bother to find him. Unfortunately for both of them, James I soon came to the throne and they were released. For 20-odd years, Cardinal Richelieu was both France's first minister and a cardinal, so one of the most powerful men in secular and religious France. He was a great patron to the arts and was the founder of the Académie Française. As a religious man, very fond of cats, one might therefore hope that he would be one of history's good guys. Sadly, from a Liberal Democrat's viewpoint, he wasn't. He was a key architect of establishing France as an absolute monarchy. He censored the press, banned public political debate, and instituted a powerful secret service which tortured and executed those who challenged him or the king. Richler, in looking for a more opulent pad, bought the Hotel Rambouillet, and over a period of six years had it converted to a sumptuous palace with separate apartments, an art gallery, a theatre and a cattery. There are many articles on the internet that claim in the 1640s Cardinal Richler had 14 cats and some of the articles even list their names. There is some contemporary support for this. A French book called Memoirs of the 17th Century does mention that Cardinal Richler did have cats. However, I'm not aware of any evidence of paw prints on any of Richler's letters. But maybe the Bibliothèque Nationale de France is less focused on this aspect of historic literature than our own British Library. Boy was a white hunting poodle belonging to Prince Rupert of the Rhine. Boy's painting is attributed to Rupert's sister, Princess Louise Palatine. Prince Rupert was one of the more colourful figures of the 17th century Europe. His uncle was Charles I. A biographer in the 19th century wrote, it is curious to observe this daring and restless man amusing himself by teaching a dog that discipline he himself could never learn. He fought in the Dutch Wars of Independence, in the Thirty Years' War and in the English Civil War. He was also a privateer in the Caribbean and the first governor of the Hudson Bay Company. 
and Rupert's Land in Canada is named after him. Apparently, as a child, Rupert and his 12 siblings were ignored by their mother, Elizabeth Stewart, who preferred to play with her pet monkeys and dogs. Had the infamous gunpowder plot succeeded, it was the conspirators' intent to put Elizabeth on the throne. At the age of 19, while fighting against the Holy Roman Empire in Westphalia, he was captured and imprisoned for three years. While in prison, the Earl of Arundel gave the prince white poodle in order to give him some company. Prince Rupert called him Boy, and Boy accompanied Rupert on his many later campaigns during the English Civil War. However, due to Prince Rupert's military successes during the English Civil War, the parliamentarians claimed that Boy was a witch's familiar and possessed of magical powers. Boy was supposedly able to find buried treasure, catch bullets fired at Rupert, be invulnerable to attack and could prophesy the future. The Royalists responded by promoting Boy to the rank of Sergeant Major General. Charles I was also very fond of Boy and would feed him roast beef and capon breast and Boy is the first officially recorded British Army dog. At least five pamphlets were produced about Boy, including the pro-parliamentary pamphlet denouncing him, and Boy was killed in the Battle of Marston Moor in 1644. Louise de Kerwai was, for 15 years, until his death, mistress of King Charles II. In art, lap dogs are often used as symbols of faithfulness and chastity whilst the outstretched arm was often used in marriage portraits, offering the hand of marriage. And of course, the lapdog is a King Charles Spaniel. This type of dog was popular in the 16th century with English and Scotch royalty. Queen Mary I and Mary Queen of Scots both enjoyed them, but it was King Charles II in the 17th century that really popularised the breed. Samuel Pepys wasn't impressed with the King's fondness for the Spaniels. He complained that the dogs had the freedom of Whitehall Palace, and roamed everywhere. He wrote about a council meeting he was at. All I observed there was the silliness of the king playing with his dog all the while and not minding the business. For the 18th century, we start in Russia with Catherine the Great. She really loved cats. In her winter palace in St. Petersburg, nowadays the Hermitage Museum, on one of the upper floors, she kept her Russian blues. Whilst in the basement, there were the non-pedigree working cats, the Mausers. The working cats had an official status as guards and a salary that went with the status. On one occasion, Catherine gifted her one-time lover, Prince Grigory Potokin, a Sevres porcelain service, which in today's money would cost about $40 million. So how was Potemkin to say thank you? He can never provide a gift of that kind of value. So being the smart statesman that he was, he gave her an Angora cat, and Catherine was delighted calling it the cat of all cats. Another lady passionate about cats is the living Russian painter Svetlana Petrova. When her mother died in 2008, she inherited her very overweight cat called Zarathustra. Eventually, Petrova started producing paintings which included Zarathustra. They proved a great success. She has been interviewed by the BBC and she and Zarathustra have their own website called Fat Cat Art. She has taken on all the world's famous paintings, so do check it out if art and fat cats appeal to you. In the 18th century European court society, a fashionable lady needed a pug. Here are four examples. There are no suitable paintings of Marie Antoinette's dogs. She had many. The Met Museum in New York does have one of her lapdog-sized kennels. It was created by a leading furniture maker of the day from Gilded Beach, 
covered with luxurious velvet and lined in a striped blue and beige silk. It is decorated with acanthus leaves in the popular neoclassical style. Aren't they all? For the six months she was under house arrest after the execution of her husband, Louis XVI, she was allowed to have her pug with her, but she was denied the pug's company for the last three months prior to execution. As with the end of the 18th century, we hit a low point for dogs. So who better to set the tone than our own George Frederick Watts? 1796 was a crucial year for British dog owners and not in a good way. The years 1794 and 1795 had seen bad weather and poor harvests across Northern Europe. An unknown general called Napoleon Bonaparte was turning round France's mixed fortunes in the French Revolutionary Wars and looked set to conquer Europe. The war prevented grain from arriving from America, leading to much starvation. Workers were on strike. The government was short of money. Income tax wasn't yet a thing. It would come in two years later. So the big question was how to fund the war. William Pitt's government addressed the thorny issue of a dog tax. Proponents argued that a dog tax would, one, raise much needed money to fund the war. Two, stop the poor wasting what little money they had on pets. Three, reduce sheep loss due to attacks by dogs. And four, reduce the unseemly actions of the rich in feeding their pets whilst the poor went hungry. One does wonder how connected to reality our politicians are. The answer that it is immoral for the rich to feed their pets whilst the poor go hungry is, of course, to ban pets for the poor. A lot of the debate was about the level of the tax. Too low and it wouldn't cover the cost of collecting the tax. Too high and so many dogs would be destroyed that again too little revenue would be raised. There was also a spiritual matter. Was a dog a thing, i.e. an asset that could be owned? Passions were high. The Secretary of State for War was clearly a dog lover. He said, There appeared a passion spleen and enmity against the canine race that amounted really to an extermination of the species. There was clearly a lot of trade-offs needed to get the dog tax bill to become an act in 1796. I'll read a tiny little bit of the act's text. Every person who shall keep any greyhound, hound, pointer, setting dog, spaniel, lurcher or terrier, or who shall keep two or more dogs of whatever description or denomination, shall be charged and assessed annually with a sum of five shillings, and also for each dog where two or more dogs... And so it goes on. The dog licence in the UK was abolished in 1988, but some today are advocating for its return. As we move to the 19th century, more anti-dog sentiment, this time from Napoleon. He was definitely not a dog person. He never had a pet dog. But his first wife, Josephine, was very much a dog person. Josephine and her first husband, Alexandra, were caught up in the reign of terror and both were incarcerated in the infamous Les Calms prison. Josephine's children found a way of communicating with Josephine by using her pet pug, Fortune, as a go-between with messages hidden under its collar. After a show trial, Alexander became one of the 17,000 guillotined to death. As Josephine's time for likely execution approached, Robespierre, one of the key architects of the reign of terror, was himself executed and Josephine was released. The experience strengthened the bonds between Josephine and Fortune. The next time we hear of Fortune is when Antoine Vincent Arnault, author of a biography of Napoleon Bonaparte, writes of a conversation he had with Napoleon. 
Napoleon is pointing at Fortune, who is sitting on a sofa, and says, Do you see that, gentlemen? He is my rival. He was in possession of Madame's bed when I married her. I wished to remove him, but it was quite useless to think of it. I was told that I must either sleep elsewhere or consent to share my bed. That annoyed me considerably, but I had to make up my mind and I gave way. The favourite was far less accommodating. Fortune was not of a sharing disposition. When Josephine and Napoleon were enjoying their most passionate moments, Fortune would bite Napoleon, drawing blood and leaving a scar. Napoleon said to Arno, I bear proofs on my legs of what I say. A few years later, Napoleon also told Arno of a report that he received that the French warship Cleopatra had been attacked and boarded by the British ship HMS Nymph. HMS Nymph's mascot was a Newfoundland dog, which is one of the first to board the Cleopatra. Having recounted this event, Napoleon then exclaimed to Arno, Dogs, must I be defeated by them on the battlefield as well as in the bedroom? A few years later still, Napoleon was imprisoned on Elba and attempted to escape. He managed to arrange a small boat to take him off the island, but at some point on the journey he fell overboard. His disappearance was not immediately noted by the crew, and Napoleon was not a strong swimmer, so he would almost certainly have drowned. Save for a passing fisherman, whose Newfoundland dog rescued Napoleon. And in an ironic coda, the last surviving descendant of the Bonaparte family, a Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte, died in New York City in 1945. He died from injuries following a fall during a walk in Central Park. He tripped over the lead attached to his dog, a pug. The discovery of Australia and all its exotic creatures captured European imagination. From the start of the 19th century, the rich and powerful demanded examples of these creatures in their menageries. The pre-Raphaelite artist Dante Gabriel Rossetti was one of those that got hooked on wombats. He lived in Chelsea and is known to have frequently taken his friends to London's Regent Park Zoo to see the wombats. After 12 years of fascination with wombats, Rossetti required his first wombat, which he named Top. The wombat arrived whilst Rossetti was in Scotland falling madly in love with Jane Morris, wife of the arts and crafts movement founder, William Morris. On hearing the news of the arrival of his wombat, he wrote Jane the following poem. Oh, how the family affections combat within this heart and each hour flings a bomb at. My burning soul, neither from owl nor from bat, can peace be gained until I clasp my wombat. Perhaps it was a good idea that he didn't give up the painting job. Although Top didn't live long, he did live long enough for Rossetti to write that the wombat had effectively interrupted a long and dreary monologue from John Ruskin by patiently burrowing between the eminent critic's jacket and his waistcoat. And if you're interested in pets and social history, two books you might want to look at are these. The Great Cat Massacre is one of a number of stories that Robert Danton covers in his book concerning the cultural history of early modern France. The story from which the book gets its title concerns a labour dispute between print workers and print owners, where the workers complain the owner's cats are better treated than they are. And the Great Cat and Dog Massacre by Hilda Keane covers a UK government voluntary programme started at the beginning of World War II to reduce the size of UK's pet population. 400,000 British pets were euthanised. 
After Prince Albert died, Queen Victoria took much solace from her dogs. When Victoria ascended to the throne, she became the patron of the RSPCA and later the patron of Battersea Dogs Home. In her lifetime, she owned 99 smooth-haired collies. In one diary entry, Queen Victoria wrote, At five minutes to eleven, rode off with Beatrice, good sharp going with us, and having occasional collie shangles with collies when we came near cottages. Does the word or phrase collie shangles mean anything to anyone? It is a Scottish word for quarrels or rows, and believed derived from fights between dogs. And Prince Albert was also a dog lover. When he arrived in England to marry Queen Victoria, Eos, his pet greyhound, came too, and Eos joined them on the honeymoon. With such royal enthusiasm for dogs, this royal couple did much to popularise both dogs as pets and pet portraits. Beatrice Potter with some of her pets. Spot the dog, the famous Peter Rabbit. The Belgian hare named Benjamin Bouncer. Benjamin often used to model for Beatrice for her drawings. He was also partial to hot buttered toast and would come running at the sound of the tea bell. Beatrice and her brother Bertram would dissect or stuff their pets when they died. The bones would be arranged in drawers in a cupboard. The 20th century and a sentence historians thought impossible. I am Caesar, I belong to the king. Such was the inscription on the collar of King Edward's wire fox terrier called Caesar. He was privileged to have his own footman and sleep on a chair next to the king, and Caesar became the constant companion of the king. After the king's death in 1910, the dog attended the funeral and walked in the procession in prominence ahead of nine kings and other heads of state. Kaiser Wilhelm II, King of Prussia, and one who easily took offence, was not amused. Having his uncle, King Edward, make him march behind this little dog did little to endear himself to the British. Caesar has been the subject of paintings and a small Fabergé sculpture carved in white Chalcedone. It has ruby eyes and an enamel and gold collar. And if you're interested, Caesar's biography can be read for free on the V&A website. Churchill was very fond of dogs, particularly his miniature poodle, Rufus. And when Rufus died, Rufus too, although Winston was at pains to point out that the two was silent. There are many quotes about Rufus and dogs that show Churchill's sensitivity and humour. Here's just two. Rufus would occasionally accompany Winston everywhere, but on one occasion, as Prime Minister in the war, he had to say to Rufus, No Rufus, I haven't found it necessary to ask you to join the wartime cabinet. Or more poignantly, one evening at Chequers, the film was Oliver Twist. Rufus, as usual, had the best seat in the house on his master's lap. At the point where Bill Sykes was about to drown his dog to put the police off his track, Churchill covered Rufus's eyes with his hands and said, don't look now, dear, I'll tell you about it afterwards. So to what degree did Rufus help Churchill make all those decisions about life and death? Paul McCartney is definitely a dog person. Martha was the name of his old English sheepdog. When Martha was no more, he acquired a black Labrador puppy called a Jet, which inspired a song of the same name with his band Paul and the Wings. And as Desmond Morris observed in his books on the natural world, artists like cats, soldiers like dogs. And we've certainly seen some examples in this talk. Field Marshal Montgomery in Normandy during the Second World War. He travelled with his two puppies and a cage of canaries. 
The two puppies were called Rommel and Hitler. Did they give him insight into the mind or temperament of his enemy? Like all autocrats, Hitler demanded total loyalty, and there was only one creature that would give him that, a dog. After World War I, Hitler acquired a German shepherd dog named Prince, but due to lack of money, he was forced to give Prince away. But Prince was loyal to Hitler and ran away from her new owners to return to Hitler. This event cemented Hitler's fondness for the breed, and he had three further German shepherd dogs, Mookie, Blonde, and the last and most famous, Blondie. Blondie was given to Hitler by Martin Bormann in 1941. Eva Brunn didn't like Blondie, much preferring her own dogs, Scottish Terriers, called Negus and Stasi. In the spring of 1945, Blondie had a litter of five pups, and Hitler started training them. When the end came for Hitler, Blondie was with Hitler and Eva in the bunker. Hitler was determined he would not be captured by the Allies. He gave a cyanide capsule to Blondie before he and Eva also took cyanide capsules. Putin is definitely a dog person. It could again be the need for unswerving loyalty. Because of this, world leaders are apt to gift Putin dogs. And not just any dog, but a dog breed that represents their country. His first dog, as a man of great power, was Connie, a black Labrador from 1999, when he was director of the FSB. The Bulgarian Prime Minister gave Putin a Karakakstan, also known as a Bulgarian sheepdog. Putin named the dog Buffy. The Akita Prefecture in Japan gifted Putin an Akita puppy called Yumi, meaning dream in English, to say thank you for Russia's help following the 2011 earthquake and tsunami off Japan. Verni, meaning faithful, is an alibi, the top breed of dog in Turkmenistan, and was a gift to the Turkmenistan president. It is otherwise known as the Central Asian Shepherd Dog. And Pasha was a gift of the Serbian president and is a Sarplaniak, also known as the Illyrian Shepherd Dog. All these gifters knew their recipient. All these dogs are intelligent, powerful and fearless and would protect whatever they were trained to protect. Sometimes when Putin had important meetings, he would have his black Labrador dog, Connie, with him. Either Russian diplomatic intelligence really is poor or Putin knew before inviting Connie that Angela had a deep-seated fear of dogs. Putin afterwards apologised to Angela, but Angela told one news media, I understand why he has to do this, to prove he's a man. He's afraid of his own weakness. Russia has nothing, no successful politics or economy. All they have is this. And certainly from the research I've done from this talk, I'm convinced that pets have played a larger role in world affairs than they are credited for. And many US presidents have had pets, especially dogs. And rather than profile individual dogs, I try to determine if there is a relationship between dog-loving presidents and good presidents. To help with assessing the goodness of a president, Wikipedia has a page entitled Historical Rankings of Presidents of the United States. A variety of rankings are provided. I use one that takes into account attributes like crisis leadership, moral authority, international relations and administrative skills. Up to Trump, there have been 44 presidents, so I looked at the upper quartile and the bottom quartile of presidents, i.e. 11 in each quartile. Those in the top quartile I labelled good presidents. Those in the bottom quartile I labelled the worst presidents. I then researched if they had any dogs and then put their names in the appropriate quadrant. 
There are 10 good presidents who love dogs and one good president who didn't love dogs. Therefore, you're 10 times as likely to be a good president if you love dogs. However, whether you like dogs or not has no bearing if you're a crap president. <laughs> I leave you to decide cause and effect. I should note that some of the worst presidents who were not dog lovers did love animals. Millard Fillimore in the 19th century, for example, had two ponies named Mason and Dixon and set up the American equivalent of the RSPCA. And Martin Van Buren was gifted a pair of tiger cubs by the Sultan of Amman and was most upset when Congress wouldn't let him keep them at the White House. Trump would have no truck with pets and actually hated dogs. His ex-wife Ivana had a pet poodle. The poodle and Trump hated each other. This hatred was manifest in a lot of barking. If you like humour, cats and philosophy and the inner monologue genre of films, I can thoroughly recommend Will Braden's films of his mother's cat, Henri. He is a cinematographer, so these are well put together. There are 17 of the films, each lasting only a couple of minutes in length and produced over about eight years. They start with one called Henri, which introduces us to the cat, but the image quality is not great. It was produced 15 years ago. I recommend you start with Henri 2. It won the 2012 Best Internet Cat Video Competition. And although Will Braden is an American, he's from Seattle, and he voices the cat's thoughts in French and provides English subtitles. And if you enjoyed this talk, I'm sure you'll enjoy these films. And to find the films, just search for Will Braden and Henri. And with that, thank you. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.